The Lord be with you. Welcome to Thin Places, the podcast channel of St. Aidan's Anglican Church in Nicholasville, Kentucky. I'm Father Lee, the pastor here at St. Aidan's, and I want to invite you to join me here each week as we join together to share common prayer, common worship, and common life. And just as the streams feed the trees on their banks till they pour in the seas, so may my life be to all those who share this wilderness road. A reading from the Epistle of St. James, beginning in the third chapter. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom that comes from above is pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly and spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose that it is to no purpose, the scripture says, he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell within us. But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Will you pray with me? Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, for you are our strength and you are our Redeemer. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. I invite you to be seated. All right, so I'm going to quickly pull the audience here. When you were growing up, do you have a distinct memory of somebody teaching to you from the book of James? We just see a show of hands. Who remembers 
being at church, receiving instruction from the book of James. One, two, three, three, maybe four, three or maybe four. So like a quarter of us, maybe a third of us. Remember that at some point in time during, during our, uh, our, our childhood. James is one of those books that we, especially as Protestant Christians, as evangelical Christians, we, we don't like it a whole lot because he says a lot of things that are really difficult for us to wrap our heads around. And he says some things that seem like they contradict deeply held, firmly held beliefs that we, that, that we cling to. And in fact, James is so difficult to wrap our heads around, especially as Protestants, that some Protestants have said, well, you don't really need to pay any attention to James. It doesn't really matter. And I don't mean like, you know, some TV evangelist who, you know, is, is just sort of spouting off at the time. Martin Luther referred to this, uh, this epistle as an epistle of straw. That was the way that he described James's book. He said, it contains nothing of the nature of the gospel. <laughs> Some bold words from, from dear old Martin. Now, again, dear old Martin often used to run his mouth off, but this wasn't one of those times. This was his introduction to the Bible that he translated. In that introduction, he describes James as containing nothing of the gospel. The problem is that we have for a very long time misunderstood what James is doing because we have assumed that the context we live in is the same as the context that James is trying to write to. We've assumed that his letter is a personal letter that he wrote to me. I hate to break it to you, but it's not a personal letter that James wrote to you. Also, none of the letters that Paul wrote are personal letters that he wrote to you. They're letters that are written to communities, communities filled with real people, real people who are living real lives just like we do. But they're not written to individuals with the exception of two or three of the epistles that were actually written to individuals who, I hate to break it to you, aren't you. <clears throat> These epistles are written to communities of believers because the apostles, the leaders of the early church, knew what these people were going through. They knew the, the hurt and the confusion and the brokenness in those communities. They knew about their hopes and their dreams and their aspirations. They knew them because they planted those churches. They knew them because they lived right alongside these people, sometimes for years working alongside, living alongside, praying alongside. They knew who these people were. And so when they wrote these letters to them, they're not writing them in a vacuum. They're not writing them, you know, the way that somebody would write an open letter to blah, blah, blah. They're writing these to people that they know, real people in time, in places, in situations. They're dealing with issues that we need to understand so that we can properly understand why they say the things that they say. Why does Paul write his letter to the church in Corinth the way that he does? What was Corinth like? What was the church in Corinth like? What did it look like to live in, uh, in, in a Hellenic city on the Mediterranean in the first century? 
What did it look like to plant a church there? To plant a church there, not just by itself, but to plant a church there out of a synagogue. What were the problems that were facing them? Now, James, at the beginning of his letter, tells us who he's writing his, his epistle to. He says, James, the servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes who are in dispersion. He's writing his letter to his Jewish brothers and sisters who don't live in Jerusalem, those who have been dispersed around the world. He's writing this as a letter to the Christians in the synagogues who are in that area around Jerusalem but can't live in Jerusalem any longer. Probably because they had been driven out. Probably because they had been driven out by neighbors. Probably because they weren't welcome in their homes anymore and they were homeless. They were exiled. He's writing to these communities that have experienced deep hurt and deep brokenness. And here's the truth. When we experience trauma in our lives, it changes the way that we see ourselves and it changes the way that we see the people who are around us. And the people that James is writing to have experienced deep, painful, life-changing trauma. And we can see as we begin moving over the last several weeks all the way now into chapter 4 what that trauma looks like. He says, in your churches we find factions and we find people bickering and people fighting with each other. People mistreating each other, especially people mistreating the poor who are in your communities. He says, when I look at those, the, those, those actions, when I look at the way that you guys are behaving, I don't see a difference between you and the people that you live among. It looks to James like the world around them is the one that is setting the goals that's setting the desires, that's setting the expected behavior for the people who are in that church. And James is appalled by this. He says, brothers, it should not be so. This isn't what God's church looks like. It doesn't look like us fighting with each other and backstabbing. It doesn't look like us privileging the rich. It doesn't look like us showing favoritism and dividing our, our community up into various factions and tribes. That's not what God's kingdom looks like. He said, here's the problem. The problem is that we start talking and the tongue is dangerous. It's destructive. He says it's a fire that never goes out, that sets everything it touches on fire. He says that the only way that we can be freed from our, from our, our slavery to the wickedness of our tongues is to have heavenly wisdom that quiets our mouths. But that's the only way that we're going to be able to begin doing the things that God is calling us to do, to begin living as the kind of community that Jesus inaugurated, to be the kind of people that God has called to be members of his family. But if we look just at the, at the very end of chapter 3 here, James says, where there is jealousy and selfish ambition, there is disorder and every vile practice. Now that phrase that he used there, 
caught my attention as I was reading through it this week. Why is it that jealousy and selfish ambition are the problem? He's just finished saying that it's the tongue. The tongue is the issue. But then he moves on to say that the tongue is apparently being motivated by jealousy and selfish ambition. What is it about jealousy and selfish ambition that is so destructive to the community of God? So I wanted to understand what it is that's happening here. Why is it that that is what is causing these quarrels? That's that word that he uses over and over again in chapter 4. What is causing this, these quarrels, this strife? The words that he uses, he uses a whole, a whole selection of different words in Greek, and they all mean fighting with each other. They're all different kinds of fighting with each other. And he uses, he uses analogy after analogy after analogy. He's like, what is it that's causing this fighting? It's jealousy and it's selfish ambition. So I looked those things up. I said, well, what is it that James is driving at? What is he trying to communicate to them? And what can we learn from what James is teaching the churches then? So the first word that he uses, we translate typically as jealousy, but the word is zeal. It's actually the word where we get the word zeal from. The word is zealous. We get the word zeal from the word zealous. And that made me pause for a minute. What is it about zeal that causes problems among the people of God? It's a tricky word in Greek because it either means having like zeal or having fervor for something, or it means jealousy. And it depends on the context, like how it's being used. So my question was, what is it about zeal that makes James use it in a negative way, that makes translators translate it in a negative way. Because obviously he's saying this is the problem, but what is it about zeal, about energy? The word, the, the, the word means fire or boiling. What is it about this boilingness that creates such a hostile environment in the community of God? Well, it's tied to the word that comes after it, that word that we translate in most of our, like our standard translations, okay? So if your Bible has an S in the middle, if, you're, if the translation you're using has an S, it's called a standard translation. Most of them translate this as selfish ambition, which again is a tricky word. So the, the, the origin of the word, my apologies to, to all of my wool crafters. The origin of the word comes from yarn making. So in, in the ancient world, the yarn makers in a community were different from the weavers and were different from the shepherds. In, in a very, very rural environment, somebody would bring the yarn in and then they would usually, they, they would do the, the carding and, the, and, and, and all of that. They would do all of that on their own and they would just use the yarn that they made. But when community started to grow, you had weavers who needed specialty yarn. And typically, the shepherds weren't equipped for that. And so a new group sort of came up in, in the midst of that, and they were called uh, the spinners, usually. So there, there, there are other words that, that they use for them. But that's the root of this word. They were a, a specialized group. Oftentimes, they were women in the community who owned their own businesses. Um, this, is, this, this is oftentimes connected to that word tent making. It's not really tent making. It's, 
it, it, it has to do with this, this kind of crafting business. So oftentimes women, especially widowed women, would have control over these businesses, but then they would pop up. And so when, when you have multiple businesses in a community that are producing the same thing, they're competing for a limited resource. And so as Greek, now, now this, over hundreds of years, as the Greek lang language developed, this word came to mean factions. So this is the same word later on that's used for mercenaries. All right, it's somebody who does work just to be paid for it. Not because the work has value in itself, but it's whatever kind of work. It was, it was very quickly applied to day laborers, people who just work for money. And then it was applied to mercenaries who just work for money. And so this word developed over time and it came to mean selfish ambition. So there's some sort of a tie that James is making between zeal and selfish ambition. Now, what is it about those two things, about a fiery spirit and a desire to succeed that causes us to break down as a community? What is it about energy and a desire to be successful that causes a community of believers to break down? James says it's because we're focused on the wrong things. Listen to what he says here. Where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every kind of vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, and then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits impartial and sincere. James says that the problem that these communities have, and if we're being honest, the problem that most communities have in the church and out of the church is that I, as an individual, am grasping and jealous. I want to grab a hold of the things that aren't mine, and I want to hang on to the things that are. And James says, that's exactly the problem. That's exactly the problem in this community. That I have unquenchable hungers in my spirit and that I grasp at the things that I don't have. And from that come disorder and every vile practice. James says, if you want to understand what the root of brokenness in our hearts and in our community is, it has to do with our hungers. It has to do with wanting everything that we see and doing whatever it takes to get those things. But listen to what he says here. My translation of verse Verse 18, the end of chapter 3, is a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Now, depending on what translation you have, that's going to that, that verse is going to show up differently. It, it's going to look different in most translations because the Greek is really, really confusing here. All right, but here's what James says. James says that peacemakers 
sow peace and harvest righteousness. Now listen to that. James says that the solution to our grasping hunger that destroys our communities is for us to be peacemakers who sow peace. Because when we as a community, not me as an individual, when we as a community sow peace, God's righteousness is the crop that grows. God's righteousness grows out of you and I being peacemakers. You and I being people who say no to the hungers and the desires that are burning inside of us. You and I saying no to the grasping need that we feel to control and seize everything around us. James says that we need to say no to those things and say yes to God's peace. Because when we say yes to God's peace, what we will see is also God revealing his justice, his righteousness in the midst of of our community and our whole community. It happens when we submit ourselves, when we give ourselves over, when we surrender ourselves to the changing grace of God. Peacemakers who sow peace, who harvest righteousness. That's what he's talking about for the entirety of chapter 4. He says, look at all of the fighting that happens over and over again. These quarrels and fights are your passions at war inside of you. You are in conflict in your heart, and so you are in conflict in every other relationship that you have. We say this over and over again, that sin isn't just me doing things that make God mad. Sin is something that alienates me from God. But it doesn't just create distance between me and God. It alienates me from you, and it alienates me from the whole of creation, and it alienates me from myself. Sin at work in me fills me with all kinds of inner conflict. And the result of that is that that conflict spills out into every single relationship that I have. Every word that comes out of my mouth is conflict. It's othering language. James says that's the problem. The tongue is just reflecting what your heart looks like. And you're filled with quarrels and fights. Your passions are at war inside of you. He says it's like chasing after two separate husbands. He says that's what it looks like. It looks like us marrying our hearts to two separate husbands. Of course, that's going to feel like we're being torn in half. And of course, any kind of community or relationship that we try to maintain is also going to be torn in half. But here's the trouble. A lot of times when we read James, we say, okay, well, James is saying that the problem in my heart is sin. Sin is evidenced by the way that I use my tongue. 
And the effect of sin is disruption and division in my life and in the community around me. And we think, James is saying, that's bad. Lee, go do it right. That's the temptation when we're reading James. If I read James as a letter to Lee, then I'm gonna, I'm gonna hear him say, here's what's wrong with Lee. And then I'm going, to, I'm, I'm going to read it and say, okay, well then what I need to do is to just stop doing those things and do the good, stop doing the bad things and do the good things. And of course, if we read it in that way, we, just like our dear friend Martin Luther, are going to say, well, I don't really find a whole lot of gospel there. I don't need somebody to tell me that, there's, that, that I'm wrong and broken. I know that I'm wrong and broken. I need somebody to save me from my brokenness. I need some to, someone to restore all of the things that are wrong in my own heart and in my own life. And this is what James says. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Now, here is the problem that we have. What I hear James saying is, Lee, draw near to God, and God will be near to Lee. But that's not what James said. James says, y'all. James says, y'all. The problem with us is not the brokenness in my heart. It's the brokenness in our hearts. And the only solution to the brokenness in my heart and your heart is for us to draw near to God. Now, James uses that language specifically because James is writing to the Jewish communities in the diaspora. And that phrase that he uses is the same phrase that shows up in the Greek version of their Bible. It's the same phrase that shows up in Exodus and in Deuteronomy. It shows up over and over again in the Psalms that I will draw near to the Lord. He says temple language to them. He says to them, if you as a community want to be made whole, if you want to experience God's grace, God's forgiveness, then you need to draw near to God. You need to come into the holy place. You need to come into God's presence because that's where healing happens. It doesn't happen by me trying really hard and it doesn't happen by me accomplishing all kinds of good things. The good things that I accomplish flow out of me being in God's presence. They happen because of what God is doing in my heart. It's an outflowing of who I am because of who I belong to. James says that if you want to be whole, if you want to see a harvest of righteousness, if you want to see peace sown in your community, then you have to draw near to God and he will draw near to you. That's what it looks like to resist the devil. It doesn't look like us just standing there and shaking our fists really hard and saying, no, not today, Satan. It looks like you and I drawing near to God. This is what it looks like for us to resist the devil. This is what it looks like for us to sow peace. This is what it looks like for us to harvest God's righteousness. This is what it looks like for us to see justice erupt in our community and in our town and in our neighborhoods and in our workplaces and our schools to see God's justice come to life in our lives happens because we draw near to God. 
And that's what James has been saying for 2,000 years. James has been saying the same thing that Jesus has been saying that whole time, that you and I have to draw near to God. That if we want to see quarrels end and fighting cease, if we want to see God's peace and God's justice, it's only going to happen if we draw near to God. And it's only going to happen if we draw near to God. Not me, us. He says to them and to us, now, draw near to God. As a community, as a people, as a neighborhood, draw near to God. Not me's, but us's. You and I together. Because I can't do this on my own. But I can do that. I can draw near to God if you will walk beside me. Every single week, we stand together around the altar and I say, lift up your hearts. And together, we say, we lift them up to the Lord. And sometimes that just feels like words. But what we're saying is, God, this is us. We give our hearts to you. And then the Lord is present with his people. You and I gathered in his presence around his table to sit at his feet, to hear from his word, to receive the blessings that he offers. That's what changes us. That's what transforms our hearts and our lives, and our neighborhoods, and our parish, and our town, and our county. That's where the transformation happens. It happens when you walk beside me. If you will walk beside me, we'll give each other strength to draw near to God. And when we draw near to God, God changes us. God transforms us. When that happens, God reveals his kingdom. Because when you and I draw near to God, we see what it's like for us to live life together as a community. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you for checking out Thin Places today. If you were blessed by your time with us and want to know more, check out anchor.fm forward slash thin dash places for more homilies, devotionals, and worship from St. Aidan's Church in Nicholasville, Kentucky. And make sure to follow us and leave a comment and join us again next time in common prayer, common worship, and common life. The peace of the Lord be always with you.
with our Father is restored. Hope with our Father is restored.